So John 5, 16. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, thank you so much for reading for us, Anthony. Um, if you want to keep that scripture passage open, that will be helpful. We're going to dive into that together, and you'll see some space for uh, notes there on page four in the bulletin and uh, some discussion questions to talk about over coffee afterwards as well. So before we start, though, let's ask the Lord to help us. Let's pray. And Father God, we, uh, we hear these words of uh, Jesus Christ, and uh, we know that we're invited into a great mystery. Lord, you are one God, and yet you eternally exist in, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory. And uh, Lord, we uh, recognize these things are beyond us, so we need your strength. And so we pray that you strengthen us by your Spirit in our inner being so that we might have power together to comprehend your great love for us as it's revealed in these verses. And we pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wanted to start out and say just a few words about our approach to preaching here as a church. And if you're here for the first time, this should especially be helpful to you. Uh, fundamentally, if you come for a few weeks, you'll notice we don't usually preach through topics or themes, although we occasionally do that now and again. Uh, our bread and butter is to work through books of the Bible, and hence we're on the passage this week after the one that we looked at last week. Uh, but with larger books like John, we don't usually um, cover the whole thing all at once. Uh, you'll notice that I tend to look at several chapters at a time. And uh, let me give you a few reasons for that. The first one is because I believe that having a varied diet is an essential thing for life as a Christian. It's important to cover different parts of Scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, the history, the prophets, narrative, poetry, epistles, and gospels. 
Uh, it is hard to preach the whole counsel of God when you preach on one book for 20 years. Uh, and if I'm honest, I suspect that you and perhaps even I myself may start to get a little bit bored of such a thing. Uh, but another reason to approach um, preaching and teaching in this way is because the scriptures itself, uh, because of the way that they are arranged. And most of the larger books like Genesis or Acts or John can naturally be broken down. Uh, the text itself suggests various natural breaks or sections. Uh, and this is true of John, uh, which is why back in the new year we looked at John 1 through 4. Um, in that section we began to see the start of Jesus' ministry. Uh, some of that ministry was public. Um, we saw Jesus cleansing the temple and doing things like that. Uh, but in those chapters, the focus was really on personal work, we might say. Uh, we read about Jesus' personal interactions with a number of, of key individuals. We see Nathaniel, we see Nicodemus, we see the woman at the well. There's this personal dialogue, and in these dialogues, Jesus begins to reveal himself, but he does so more privately. Uh, and now in chapter 5, uh, and following, there is a shift, and, and things begin to pick up. Uh, there is an escalation, if you will. Uh, from here on out, things start to heat up, both in terms of the revelation of Jesus and who he is, but also in terms of the resistance that we begin to see to his ministry. Uh, in terms of revelation, things become more public. Jesus starts to address the crowds. Uh, but they also become more pointed. Jesus begins to get more explicit in his claims. He's very open about who he is and, and why it is God sent him. And therefore, perhaps it's no surprise that just as Jesus cranks up the volume, if you will, then, then resistance also increases. Uh, here he comes into greater conflict, especially with the Jewish authorities, uh, which is why as we start this section, this, this teaching of Jesus in John chapter 5 plays such a vital role. I mean, I mean, we should ask ourselves, how are we meant to understand this escalation? Uh, what is it that causes things to heat up? I mean, we might even ask the same question in our own time, because I think we see the very same dynamic in the world today. It seems to be that the more public and the more pointed we are in our commitment to Jesus Christ, the more we also find ourselves meeting with conflict. The clearer the revelation, the more cutting the resistance. Why do you think that is? I think there are various different kinds of explanation. You could explain it in terms of psychology or, or in terms of sociology or maybe even in terms of politics. You will find plenty of pundits out there who would speak to any one of those things or perhaps even all of them. But notice for Jesus, the focus turns elsewhere. The explanation Jesus gives isn't psychological, it isn't sociological, it isn't political. For Jesus, it is theological instead. It is all about who Jesus is because the real issue is this. The real issue is that Jesus is God. He is the same God who made us and who sustains us every single day. And as such, Jesus makes a very radical claim on us. This is what we see in verses 19 all the way through verse 47. We're going to look at the first part of, of this monologue from Jesus Christ today. And in these verses, Jesus says some astonishing things about himself. Uh, this is Jesus teaching us about Jesus. Uh, and as he does, he tells us three things. Uh, firstly, we learn about his relationship with the Father. His relationship with the Father. And secondly, we learn about the role given him by the Father. Uh, the role given him by the Father. And then thirdly, in light of all of that, we learn about the response called for 
from the Father, at the response that's called for from the Father. And all of this explains what happened back then in the first century, why his teaching brought such resistance. Uh, What is more, it it explains the conflict uh, and also the call of Jesus Christ on our lives today. And so let's work through those three things. Let's firstly think about Jesus' relationship to the Father. Uh, That's the theme of verses 19 through 20. And the key point here is this, to understand that that the Father and the Son are one, uh, that they are united, that they are united as equals. Look at verse 19 with me and you'll see what I mean. Take a look at verse 19. In verse 18, the leaders have just uh, accused Jesus of, of claiming to be equal with God. And Jesus' response is basically to say, yes, 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 I am. I mean, look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now, as I reflected on these words over the last week, uh, let me tell you what helped me. Uh, It's helpful, I, I think, to view this in terms of math, or perhaps, if you prefer, in terms of engineering. Now, imagine for a moment two circles making up a Venn diagram. Do you remember what a Venn diagram is? It's where you have two circles that overlap with two values. They they sort of correspond to those circles. And I've got to say, I'm sorry if this brings up some painful memories from from math classes. The the elders and deacons will be available to provide counseling at the end of the service if, uh, if it's needed. Uh, But work with me here for a moment, at least. Uh, There are these two circles. Let's say one represents the Father, one represents the Son, uh, or at least the work, what it is they do. Uh, The first thing Jesus says is this, the Son can do nothing on his own, uh, but only what he sees the Father doing. Uh, That tells us this, it tells us that the the Son's circle is completely inside the Father circle, right? Uh, There is nothing Jesus does that doesn't overlap with, with the work of God the Father. Are you with me so far? Do you, do you see what we're saying? But look at the second thing Jesus says. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And what that tells us is this. Well, the Father circle is also completely inside the Son circle. And if you're picturing this in your mind, you know, then, then you know there's only one way this could possibly work. It's only possible if the Father and the Son circle are the same. It's only possible if they completely overlap. It's only possible if they, there is an identity and equality between these two things. Not that the Father and the Son are exactly the same, uh, but there is a sense in which they're fully one, fully united. Verse 20 describes this in terms of the perfect love of the Father. Uh, The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Uh, We have to say as we read these things, we're walking on holy ground. There is an element of of mystery to this. Uh, This is the scriptural basis that we have for the doctrine that we, we refer to as the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God who eternally subsists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And now what I just said should really blow our minds. And if you feel you understand this, well, it's likely that you have it wrong and, in fact, believe some form of heresy. But the takeaway really is this. It provides the basis for everything Jesus Christ does. Can you see there is an emphasis throughout this passage on the work of Jesus, the work of the Father, the work of the Son. It's not only who they are, it is what they do. In other words, Jesus is telling us this, that that everything the Father does, he does through him. He's telling us that, that everything he does, everything Jesus does, he does at the Father's bidding. 
And this explains why Jesus can heal, as we saw last week. It explains why, as we'll discover, Jesus can calm storms. It explains how he can raise the dead and do all kinds of other miracles. It explains why we should listen to what he says, because he's equal with God. He is God. He is the eternal word who was God and who was with God, even in the beginning. As we'll see in a moment, this tells each of us how we should relate to Jesus Christ. It tells us how each of us should relate to him personally. And so notice, firstly, this first thing we see. Uh, Jesus, as God's Son, has this unique relationship to the Father. Uh, But secondly, let's consider his unique role, the role given Jesus by the Father. And what we're thinking about here, particularly, is the role that Jesus plays as the incarnate Son. Uh, And without getting overly theological, it's important to distinguish this from his eternal identity. Uh, There is this eternal relation between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Uh, It's what theologians often call the ontological trinity, ontology just referring to God's essence, his his fundamental being. In eternity, the Father begets the Son. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, Understanding what that means is, quite frankly, beyond us. There are times at which we just have to retreat to mystery. But at the same time, verse 19 suggests that all of that, that glorious truth about God, provides the foundation for God's plan in human history. Because Jesus has this unique relationship with God, well, he serves a unique role in God's plan. Or as Jesus puts it, there are even greater works for him to do, something greater even than the miracles. This greater work, these greater works, make all of his miracles pale by comparison. Uh, Look at the role the Father has given to the Son there in verse 21. Life and death are in his hands. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. Uh, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, uh, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. And now as I read this, I'm reminded of a time when I was uh, back in school, uh, when I was in school training to be a pastor. Uh, at the very beginning, uh, there was a school welcome lunch. Uh, the aim was to foster community amongst the fellow students. And now my school was close to Philadelphia, and so lunch obviously was cheesesteaks. And uh, I joined the line to assemble my sandwich. It was a very cross-cultural experience, let me say. Uh, did I want onions, mushrooms, and sauce, and don't even get me started on the cheese whiz? <laughs> anyway, I got talking to this guy in front of me. I mean, I needed direction. I needed someone to tell me what to do. So I, so, so I asked him, and uh, he looked around my age, maybe a little bit younger. Uh, he started to talk about where he was from, and we shared our backgrounds, details about our families. Uh, we got talking about the school, and I, I shared what I'd heard, uh, what I'd learned, kind of the skinny on the professors, the different uh, people who taught there. And I have to say, I was struck by the fact this guy was a little bit guarded in his opinions about, about the professors, and I, I was soon to discover why. And maybe you can see where this is going, but at, at one point, uh, we were called to attention from the front. We were going to hear from one of the faculty, and, and actually the guy I was speaking to stood up and, and then went to the front. And now it turns out he was one of the New Testament professors. He just looked a little bit young for his age, let's say. And uh, looking back, I, I don't think I said anything unkind about him. Uh, although I saw him fairly recently, I still feel a little bit awkward about that conversation. Uh, after all, we could put it this way. Uh, this guy held my life in his hands. I was going to take his class. He was going to grade my exams. He was going to grade my papers. 
Whether I made it through seminary depended on him. He had the power to pass me or to fail me. And it's a very uh, trivial illustration. It's a faint picture, isn't it? But it's a faint picture of what we learn here about the Lord Jesus. Uh, Jesus holds life and death in his hands. He will grade your final exam, not, not just in math or in economics or theology. He will grade your final exam on life itself. He will determine whether you pass or fail. He will decide personally where you spend eternity. Look down with me at verse 28 for a moment. These are sobering words. Jesus himself unpacks this idea that God has entrusted him with judgment. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, he says, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice, that is Jesus' voice, and they will come out, out of their tombs, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And now this idea of a day or an hour of judgment was common amongst Jesus' peers. It's also a common teaching that we find all the way throughout the scriptures. The Bible teaches us that death is not the end. When we die, we don't just rot in the ground and become plant food. No, at some point in the future, God will judge the world. Every single one of us will stand before God. We will give an account, account of everything that we've ever thought or everything that we've ever said or everything that we've ever done in this life. If you were here for our class on the Gospel of Mark, this will be a familiar illustration. But, but imagine for a moment that, uh, that someone made a movie. It was a movie of your life. Everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, captured in 4K. Uh, Worse than that, there are subtitles. Uh, The subtitles aren't your words, but your thoughts. There's a running commentary on everything that's going through your mind. And now, would you invite your friends around to watch that show? Uh, There might be some scenes you want them to see, but I imagine there would be some moments when you might just hope the ground would open. Well, God sees and God knows everything, and so he doesn't even need a video. And one day he will call to account everyone for every unkind thought, every angry word, every sinful action. Uh, This is what the Jews believed, whom Jesus is speaking to, and it's what Christians continue to believe today. Uh, This idea of judgment isn't something new. Uh, What is new is what Jesus tells us about that day. The shock isn't so much about the what, but about the who. Jesus claims this. He says, on the final day, I will be the judge. When the books are opened and when we're all laid out, Jesus won't be in the dock like the rest of us. No, Jesus will be the one holding the gavel. All judgment has been given into my hands. What an incredible thing to say. I mean, there's there's no wonder they wanted to kill him. It's so incredibly blasphemous to claim God's job for yourself. I mean, unless, unless what Jesus has already said about him turns out to be true. If Jesus really does have a unique relationship with God, if he is the eternal son, if he really is equal with God in every way, then then it makes sense he is the judge, doesn't it? But the problem is many people look on Jesus Christ and they make the very same mistake that I made with that professor. He's just one of us, they think, and so they relate to him as if he's just just one of their classmates. And Jesus is one of us. This is an amazing thing, isn't it? He is one of us in the sense that that by the grace of God, he took on flesh and dwelled among us. 
And yet, as a man, he's been given this awesome role in the plan of God. All judgment has been given into his hands. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? When we share our faith, we often ask this question, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Have you ever asked someone that? Well, John 5 drives us to ask a perhaps more important question, not what do you think of Jesus Christ, but what does Jesus Christ think about you? Really, it's much more important. He's the judge. He will grade us on life. He will determine where every one of us spends our eternal future. And that, of course, raises the question of our response to him. It does matter what we think of Christ. So let's move on to that. We've thought about his unique relationship with the Father. We've thought about the unique role given him by the Father. But what do we make of all of this? What about the response called for by the Father? I mean, the text itself stresses our response to Jesus Christ. Look down at verse 22. Jesus has been given this role of judge, but we're also told here the response that God is looking for toward him. At verse 22, for the father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son. And why has he done that? Well, verse 23 tells us that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. And then he even has the audacity to say this. I mean, think about this. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. What an incredible thing to say in the society that we live in today, a a pluralistic society where people claim there are thousands of paths to to God, if God even exists, Uh, where people suggest that religion or spirituality is just a case of choose your own adventure. Uh, Jesus refuses to allow such a thing. Uh, He says this, the only way to honor God is to honor me. In fact, the author John writes elsewhere, you can't have the Father without the Son. Unless you worship Jesus as God, you are worshiping a very different God to the one that's revealed in the pages of Scripture. And this perhaps again explains why there is a lot of pushback, doesn't it? It explains why the clearer we are about what we believe, the more, the more public and pointed we are, the more opposition heats up against us. We need to honor Jesus as the eternal Son. Uh, But what I want to focus on is actually something a bit more personal than that. Uh, I want you to to consider your own personal response to Jesus Christ. Uh, I mean, I've already said Jesus holds your life and death in his hands. And so what does this mean for us? How can we experience life? Uh, I I mean, all of us really deserve death, don't we? I've already spoken about that, that video of your life, everything you've ever thought, everything you've said, everything you've ever done. Uh, Can you honestly say you're happy with all of that? Can you honestly say you have no regrets, nothing you would take back, nothing at all that you're ashamed of? I mean, people claim things like this. I've got to say, when they do, I think it's quite frankly ridiculous. I mean, it only demonstrates that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves, because Jesus does not uh, hold back the fact that all of us clearly are sinners, Although God made us and loves us, every single one of us turns our backs on him. All of us seek to live life our own way rather than God's way. We act like this is my life, that I'm alive in my world, forgetting that we didn't create ourselves, but everything we have is a gift from the God who made us. And so on Judgment Day, what do we deserve? Well, we deserve death. We deserve what Jesus calls the resurrection of the judgment. But this is why Jesus... Uh, why what Jesus says here is actually such good news. Uh, Because not only does he speak about himself as as the judge on that final day, uh, but he speaks about another time as well in verse 25. Uh, Look at verse 25. It it, it appears that God is going to move the judgment forward. 
Now, truly, I say to you, he says in verse 25, an hour is coming and is now here. The hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and won't die but will live. But what is Jesus talking about in that verse? Well, he's telling us this. He's telling us that not only is he the judge, the judge of all the world, but he is also the only saviour. He's telling us that here now on earth, in the flesh, uh, we don't need to be condemned. We can be prepared for that final day. He's telling us that not only will he raise the dead physically in the last day, but he can also raise the dead now in this life spiritually. He's telling us that uh, if we come to him, if we trust in him, that God will move that final day of judgment forward. Forward to today, even now, if we trust in him, if we believe in him, uh, God will declare on us even now a very shocking, a very surprising verdict. Look at verse 24. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's not a future thing. It's a present reality. He doesn't come into judgment, says Jesus. He, He will not be condemned, but has passed from death to life already. In this life, we can experience life, eternal life, the life of eternity. And we can do this because Jesus Christ came to die, to be condemned in our place, to bear the judgment we deserve. And we can do this because Jesus rose again and now has the power to raise up anyone who trusts him. Now, believing in Jesus Christ, let me put it this way, believing in Jesus Christ seals the verdict of that final day. It guarantees where we will spend eternity. It guarantees that we'll be raised in the resurrection of life to enjoy eternity with God. In fact, it guarantees more than that. It guarantees life with God now. It guarantees being raised up from spiritual death. It means that we can experience new life, a new relationship with God today. And we can begin in some small way to live life, to begin to live life the the way we were made to live it. And all we have to do is trust in Jesus Christ. We have to hear his word. We have to believe him. I mean, think of my friend, um, and he is now my friend, that professor. Um, uh, if you're a student, you, you will know that, that uh, each professor is a little bit different, aren't they? Now, one of the things you have to figure out is exactly what each professor is looking for. I mean, this is my tip to the students with us. I mean, uh, maybe this is good advice, maybe not. But you have to know, do they expect you attend, to attend every class? That's kind of an important question. Do they grade on a curve? That's another one. Do they care about those weekly assignments? I mean, how much is the final exam and how much is class participation? Well, again, it's not the greatest analogy, I admit, but look at it this way. If Jesus Christ is the judge, if he holds your life and death in his hands, if Jesus Christ will grade you for eternity, then we have to ask this. What is Jesus looking for from you? What response does Jesus seek? Does he expect you to be a good person? Does he expect you to be perfect? Does he expect you simply to try your best? Well, well, the good news is no. That's not what Jesus is looking for at all. Your eternity does not depend on your moral performance. Nor does it depend on whether you attend church. I guess we could call that class participation or or something. No, what it depends on is, is what you do with him. Do you believe in him? Do you believe he's equal with God? Do you believe that he alone is judge? Do you believe that he alone is savior? Do you believe his word? Do you believe what he himself 
says about himself and about God. Because listen to this, whoever does their best has eternal life. No, that's not what it says, does it? Look at what Jesus says in verse 24 again. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has already passed from death to life through the saving power of Jesus. And what an incredible thing for Jesus Christ to say. I mean, does this not explain everything? Uh, Doesn't it explain why things start to heat up as the revelation of Jesus Christ becomes public and pointed? Doesn't it tell us why there there was this resistance against him and there continues to be resistance against him today? I mean, imagine someone showing up in America today. Uh, Imagine that they they claimed that they had the authority to bypass the president, to bypass Congress, to bypass the courts. All judgment has been given to me, they say. I have this unique relationship with God. I'm equal with him. Uh, And I've been given this unique role by God. God has put life and death, your life and death, in my hands. And so your future depends on one thing. And one thing alone. It depends on your response to me. I mean, it sounds a little bit crazy, doesn't it? I mean, who would say such a thing? And yet, yet by his spirit, through his word, that is exactly what Jesus Christ is saying to you this morning. And so what do you make of this? How do you respond to Jesus Christ? What do you make of his unique relationship with God? What do you make of the unique role that he has in God's plan? How will you respond to him? Will you believe in him? Will you trust him? Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these clear and pointed words of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that you uh, don't leave us in the dark, but you tell us very clearly uh, through your Son who you are, uh, what you've done for us, what it is that you're looking for. And Lord, we thank you for your great grace that you've revealed yourself, that that though no one has ever seen God, uh, you, God the Son, have have made God known. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us, uh, every one of our hearts here now, and ask that you would open our hearts to this, this great news of Jesus Christ. Help us to hear his word. Help us to believe in him. Help us to know eternal life in his name. And we pray all of this in his name.